Hey everyone, this is Mike Dunn. I'm Julie Cook. I'm Matt Downing. I'm Janine Dunn. And you are listening to Rethinking EDU. Hey everybody, thanks for joining us this uh, fine day as we are bringing to you our next episode in our series called Perspectives, where we are bringing voices to the table to talk about their unique position and their view of education from that position. And uh, tonight we are happily uh, joined by our friend, Jen McGovern. Jen, how are you doing tonight? Great, really excited for the conversation tonight. Awesome, awesome. Yeah, we're excited to have you here. and. Just a little bit about you, Jen. So you are a professor um, at Monmouth University, and I never uh, can always get a handle on the different ranks that professors have, but you are an assistant professor. Is that correct? That is correct. Okay. And in uh, sociology, is that also correct? Yes, it is. Okay, great. And, um, you know, one of the reasons why we are hoping that you'll give us some amazing insights tonight is because your dissertation was all about baseball and that's super cool. <laughs> Do you want to give the listeners a little bit of insight into uh, kind of how you decided to write, write a giant research paper on baseball? Yeah, I'd love to. I loved sports. Sports were always something my whole life that I that I really found a lot of passion in and I connected with. And yet at the same time, sport was a space where as a female, I did not always feel included. And um, growing up, my dad, who was a huge Brooklyn Dodgers fan, had given me books uh, about Jackie Robinson, as well as other players who broke barriers in baseball. And I sort of had thought my whole life about, you know, who gets to play sports and who doesn't. How do we have conversations about things like race in sports? And, and how can sports both be something that heals us and maybe brings us together across our divisions, but also how can sport maybe reinforce those divisions at time? And, and that was sort of the, the guiding thing that I wanted to study. Um, baseball is one of my favorite sports to watch. And at the time when I was writing, there were many immigrants in baseball. And if you follow baseball, you know that a lot of these immigrants come from uh, places in Latin America and the Caribbean. There's also a fair amount of players who have come over from Asia. And I just had a lot of questions about um, how fans would engage with that. Was it something that they cared about? Um, did they feel like watching and seeing that diversity and bringing those players and their stories into their home change their minds or their attitudes um, about race? Did it matter? Did it not matter? Did it create spaces for people to talk about it? And what ways did maybe broadcasters or announcers uh, break down stereotypes about different racial groups or, or build them up? And so that was really the, the basis for the dissertation. And ever since then, I've continued my work in studying how different things such as gender or socioeconomic status or, or even race can kind of affect who gets to play and, and how they experience sport. So fascinating. Um, and, and so after composing this uh, giant research paper on a really, really cool topic, um, you sort of have situated yourself in higher ed for the past 20 years or so, um, which, is, which is amazing. And I would love just to hear a little bit more about, you know, what drew you to maybe teaching at, at the uh at the university level you know it's a it's a it's a certain calling teaching certainly but teaching at university is a, an entirely different calling altogether at least at least i believe and i would wonder just what brought you there yeah i think there's a couple factors you know i love learning growing up i, I just mm. love learning i love reading i was a really curious young person um, and as you know, I also love sports. So, so somehow in my mind, I wanted to have some kind of career that would, you know, link me up with sports. Uh, and maybe I would become a physical therapist or for the longest time I was going to you know, work for Nike and design the best shoe to pull vault you <laughs> hire. You know, I would have all. <laughs> Sounds wild, like fun. <laughs> yeah, yeah, wild ideas. Um, when I, when I first got to college, I actually found that I got injured. I was running cross country. I, I got injured and I had to go to physical therapy and I thought, oh my gosh, I actually hate physical therapy. I don't want to be a physical therapist. <laughs> uh, at the same time, I actually really got into sociology. I really liked it. I really enjoyed it. And I, I didn't really know what I wanted to do, which is almost why I chose sociology as a major because it's working with people. It's understanding groups. And I felt like there's a lot of directions I can go. I'll figure it out. 
Um, and I think I never envisioned myself as a teacher because all the images I had of teachers, especially of women, were these like school marmy types that taught really little kids. And I think that there's a real value to people who, who teach young kids, but I just didn't see myself that way. And I wouldn't be surprised if other people you know, I'm thinking, for example, young men sort of don't see themselves in that role, not because they're not good at it and not because they wouldn't love teaching or learning, because this is sort of like the image that has been cultivated of, you know, who a teacher is. And, and in the process, one of the things I was doing on campus is I was really involved in different student leadership groups. And I actually found out that there were people on campus and it was their full time job to actually work with these student leadership groups. And I thought, hey, that's really cool. You can work in higher education. You don't have to. You can be involved in teaching and learning in a way that's not dealing with young children. Because, again, I just I don't think I have the patience. I, I, I think uh, K through five teachers are saints. Um, and I Me think too. I teach high schoolers, <laughs> so I hear you. <laughs> and and I, at some point I thought about teaching high school, but you know hmm. what? I didn't want to commit to a discipline, but I loved working with students, but there were two problems. Number one, I was not personally challenged enough. I felt like I really wanted to still grow and expand my mind. And I didn't feel at the time, I think there were a lot of factors. It may have been that particular job, the personnel who were there. I didn't feel like I was having much personal growth after five years. I, I had sort of plateaued. Um, and at the same time, I didn't necessarily feel like that job was the best fit for my skill set. And I had some students who would come into my office and say, gosh, I really like, like talking to you. I, I wish I was learning as much in the classroom as I'm learning in here when I work with you on these projects. And, you know, that made me think, gosh, they're coming to college and they're not learning anything. They, they could do this at a job for, for less. They could actually earn money instead of pay it um, to learn these lessons. So that was when I decided to go back and I decided to pursue a sociology degree uh, with the thought that I would take myself in one of three directions. Number one, I would study sociology and become a sociology professor. Uh, number two, it might open doors as a researcher, which would kind of cure that curious part of me. And number three, I thought that there might have always been a pathway back to higher education in administration, if that's the way I wanted to go. Um, through the experience of getting my PhD, I realized that teaching in a university was the thing that I liked best. I thought it was the best fit for my skill set. I didn't have to choose a discipline. And I say that, you're like, you're a sociologist. I did not have to choose a discipline because I could apply sociology to many different things. So I could use it to study sports. I could use it to study healthcare and medicine. I could use it to study gender or race and ethnicity. So that to me felt like this variety that I was craving and the ability to jointly work on both my own research projects and students kind of filled those dual roles of, I like educating, I like working with students and seeing them grow, but I also care about my own growth. And I found that a university professor job was just a really nice way to balance the things that I wanted in my career. There's like so many things you're saying that resonate with my own life path right now, Jen. I just have to say, I don't even, I don't even know. We should, we should like connect after the podcast is over so we can talk more because I would love to hear more all about those stories and kind of what brought you to the spot you're in now. Um, aside from that, I'm interested in this, uh, I, I just have one more question, and then I'll pass it off to one of the co-hosts. I'm interested in this image of a teacher that you have, that you had available to you as you were thinking about your career path as the quote-unquote school marmy sort of like individual, right? Um, do you have any sort of impressions of early teachers that maybe like embody that sort of uh, image specifically? And and why do you think those images stick out maybe more than others to you? Yeah, well, I did go to a Catholic school for my whole life. So a lot of my very first teachers were actually nuns and they okay. were okay. older nuns, some who were quite in the strict style. So that's one image I have of a teacher. And again, here, this is something that I didn't see. Um, when I'm thinking of other images that stand out, and I actually really liked a lot of my teachers that were more lay people, but they were all women. 
We didn't really have any male teachers for a very long time. Um, the image that you say, what stands out most to me? Like I'm thinking of the kindergarten teacher on Billy Madison. <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah. <laughs> who reads the story of the lost puppy. Sure. Sure. I know it well. Right? Yeah. Yeah. And I'm not thinking of Miss Veronica Vaughn, <laughs> right? Yeah. Uh, the hot one that he wants to grab her butt. Right. Um, <laughs> And so that's, I think that these images are often sort of like reinforced through, through the media, um, through movies, through television, that, that this is sort of like what you can be. You have this, you're definitely a female and you're either this sort of maybe older, nunny, um, you know, arts and craftsy kind of Billy Madison type, or you're, you know, maybe the hot one that doesn't quite fit. And let's just say, I know we don't have video on here, but I'm not the hot one. So um, I just, those are the images that I saw and over and over. And I think they were a combination of what I saw in the media and uh, based on my own experience. Now you had a second part to the question and I got so wrapped up in the Billy Madison reference that I forgot it. <laughs> it's okay. It was, it was really just around, like, I think, I think you answered it mostly. It was around, you know, what sorts of experiences that you had that sort of embodied these things and, and how you think that that impacted you. And I think you pretty much covered that. Um, I guess we're interested in your perspective um, as a higher ed person. We're all K to 12ers. Um, so what has your experience been um, as a professor? Maybe take us through like the day to day. What do you like about your job? Um, what do you not like about your job? I think what I love most about my job is the variety and flexibility. Um, so there's a lot of different things uh, that I do. So for example, yesterday I taught three courses actually in person. Um, and today I prepared some, I'm teaching hybrid courses this semester. And uh, so what I might do on a typical week is I might teach some courses. Uh, after those courses were over, I met individually with a couple of students and helped them out um, as advising, trying to get their class schedules sorted out. Um, mostly today I worked on prep so getting the lectures ready for tomorrow and the rest of the week, uh, devising different um, assignments. In addition, I spoke with several colleagues today about uh, committees that I'm working on and different uh, projects and goals that we have on those committees. And I also spoke with a colleague about a research project that we are doing but are putting on hold right now. And so I really, I think I like that variety um, I like the fact that it's never one thing all the time. There's lots of different things. Your classes will change every semester. So you can teach new classes and, and you have academic freedom. So you can decide a new way to teach them. You might want to add a different movie. I'm teaching the sociology of sport this semester. And given what we saw this summer in the sports world, I was able to add some different readings and ideas to keep it more current. So I really like that. Um, and it's flexible. Typically, you're only required to be on campus a certain number of days a week, and then the rest of the time you work from home. So I'm someone who's been kind of splitting, going into an office and working from home for a while. And I really like that combination of occasionally getting to see and work with colleagues and students, but also having um, time when I can just really focus on my research or my writing or um, my class prep or other projects that I'm working on. And, and I determine what that schedule is. So I can wake up early or stay up late. Um, I can work on the weekends or late at night, but that's really my choice. So those are my favorite things. Maybe if we could get you to take a uh, bird's eye view of um, higher ed. Um... From your perspective where you are, um, what are some opportunities that you see in higher ed that are happening now? Um, and maybe some of the challenges beyond the obvious COVID right now, um, but the challenges in general um, of teaching in higher ed right now? Yeah, I'll, I'll hit the challenges first because um, I do think the opportunities are important, but but one of the issues that's happening right now is those, those opportunities are limited by the challenges. Mm -hmm. um, I'd say one of the biggest challenges is financial. I, it's no surprise that tuition rates have been rising. You know, they're rising faster than almost any other consumer good. They're rising faster than healthcare, which has risen 300%. So the rising costs are you know, problematic on a number of levels. Um, on some ways, uh, we're as professors having to, to fight for resources that we need to do our jobs. Um, sometimes those resources are things like salaries and benefits, and sometimes those resources are funding for research and conf conferences, right? 
And so that's not necessarily at my school, but, but really broadly. And as part of that, we're also seeing um, this, this trend of really small schools like closing down or being absorbed by bigger schools as a way to kind of deal with these costs. So you have rising tuition. At the same time, the birth cohorts in the next 10 years are much lower than they were because these are all the children that were born during the recession coming up in the next 10 years. So between people who are staying out of college because of the cost and the fact that there are just fewer people coming to college is just exacerbating those problems and COVID didn't help. So you're seeing a lot of financial struggles and financial difficulties, which then also cause tensions on campus. So there's extra money. Where does it go? To a new lab or to a new athletics facility? Well, if we build this new athletics facility, we'll seem shiny and people can come to campus and we might get higher enrollees if they see this. But on the flip side, we're working in a really old chemistry lab. Um, so those, that's, that's a huge challenge. Um, a related challenge to that is the kind of stretching of professors. So the demands for professors have really gone up over time. So a lot of things you'll um, hear with professors is like how many courses they teach, and then all professors have three parts of their job. How many courses you teach is one of them and kind of how many of each type, how often you teach them. The second thing is service. So the committees you're working on for the university. And the third thing is research and publishing. And the balance of what they want you to do at each school is gonna differ. But I know that at a school like Monmouth, where I work, the pressure to do all three just feels like it keeps increasing and there's only so many hours in a day. And so it's really, really difficult to do all three and to do all three well, especially when you're fighting for resources to do all three. I think one related issue, Jen, here is also the rise of the adjunct professor, right? And uh, right now, you know, there's a huge emphasis on bringing in adjunct professors because it's a significant cost-saving measure for many universities. And, um, I'm sure that's true at Monmouth. It's it's true really all over the country for universities. And I think that uh, adjuncts are amazing. I've had some amazing adjunct professors in my life, and um, they often bring really great things to school communities. But I think one of the biggest challenges there is that adjuncts often don't have the opportunity to kind of build that relationship with the school community. Um, and that's often because they might be teaching at two or three universities or something like this, and they uh, don't have the investment in that singular university because they're not on the tenure track. They're not a, a cornerstone fabric uh, of, the, um, of the university itself. Yeah. So, for example, we have a number of folks, you know, who are serving students in the student affairs department. Um, if they were to get masters or EDDs, they actually might be able to teach one or two classes. So you actually have the connection to the university and they're teaching in the education department. But they're also working with undergrads on a daily basis. I think we could probably also do more things, what we might call in the business split a line. Um, so a line would be, you know, a budget line for a professor. And we're so siloed off in departments. So I'm in sociology. But we would like to hire someone maybe who could teach students, given what's happening with COVID, about health and how society and health kind of go hand in hand. So if we can split that person part time with the health studies department, that actually might help out because we would kind of both be paying for it. And we could also have more interdisciplinary you know, collaborations. I love to see costs lowered. Um, that's a whole other can, can of worms. And one easy way to do that is to look at things like administrative salaries, as well as things like water parks. And <laughs> yes. very Steve. fancy dorms. <laughs> and all that jazz. <laughs> right. So to go on, right? Oh, uh, yeah. Who has the time? Um, so how do we actually take the money that's already there and put it into high quality instruction and research that professors are doing that will result in high quality instruction as opposed to just rock walls, right? Like how do we rebalance a budget in a way that's student focused, I think, but student academic focused while realizing that there's these other parts of their brains and social lives they need to develop. So like you occasionally might need to climb, climb a rock wall. But like maybe like a $500 rock wall, not a billion dollar rock wall. <laughs> 
Or maybe you bring in that portable rock wall, you know? The inflatable one. Yeah, that's the you way to go. Right? <laughs> yeah, so, so those are just some some things that I think that we could do. Yeah, I love that you just brought up uh, this idea of being able to build relationships with with students and uh, and I would go so far as to say even colleagues. Um, you know, coming, I, I totally can relate to what you just said there as a as an adjunct professor myself. That yeah, I think that is a huge piece that could be an issue that you don't when you come in as an adjunct, you don't really have. Um, you're right, as much background knowledge about the campus and things that are actually going on and happening on campus. And sometimes, you know, might feel like you can't answer the questions for the students um, that, you know, or don't pertain to your class. And uh, it can be, it can be tricky to, to build those relationships um, with students and the colleagues. So, you know, I'm wondering, since you've been involved, you know, with education for over 20 years now, I'm really wondering this, have you seen a change in the students, you know, have, uh, is there, is there any difference between a, a student now <laughs> that's on campus or, or a student that we, that you had, you know, at the, at the beginning or that you saw when you were first working in student affairs? Yes, a little bit, but <laughs> look, I'm a researcher, so I'm going to have to qualify this, right? A little bit of a little bit of a selection bias in that in the early stages of my career, I was almost the same age as the students, right? And working in student affairs, a little older or not that much older. Every year I get older, I mean, and they just stay the same age now, right? <laughs> so, you know, they're 18 every year and I'm another year older. So, so some, some of what I'm seeing may just be, you know, like, I, I am I becoming a cranky old person who had to walk both ways to school in the snow barefoot? <laughs> or like, are they actually different? Um, but I also kind of, flip-flops between um, private and public universities. So like I attended a private university, got my master's at a public university, got my PhD at a public university, and then popped back to work at a private. And I, I do think those students are a little bit different. So, so some of what I might be seeing here might actually just be that, that transition. Um, given those, you know, important selective bias uh, <laughs> clarifications, um, you know, I, I think one thing that that I definitely notice is is the inability to focus. And this is one of those things that COVID has just, you know, really uh, blown open the doors on. So, you know, the ability to sit down and read a book or write a paper uh, without looking at your phone 10 times. Right. Um, really, really difficult. Um, you know, I ask students not to use their phones in class and like, you can almost, you know, see them itching and, and looking around, right? So, so the inability to really tune in, and I'm curious if where that starts or when it starts or what point in education it starts, right? Um, that's one thing. Uh, but the other thing that I, that I think is, some, some of the other things I think that are a little more maybe big picture is in the last couple of years, I, I found that, um, our students have an inability to, to think critically and, and, and connect. And, and so what I mean by that is, let's say I give a lesson on one day about the gender differences in the workplace. And then three weeks later, I give a lesson on the, how gender affects our health, right? And on the final exam, three weeks later, I ask a broad question of, you know, describe what we mean by gender and, you know, tell me how the differences in the workplace affect health. And so I just phrase it a little differently and pull things from maybe two or three different days. I actually find that students are having a harder time doing that. They're having a harder time connecting lessons and lectures that didn't happen on the same day. So they can kind of think linearly but maybe having a harder time making connections, thinking circularly, going forward and back. Um, you know, there, there's other things. I mean, on, they've, on the one hand, they, they've sort of like, they have never been kinder. I've worked over the course of my time and had several students um, who had various levels of learning or physical disabilities in class. And, and, and I feel like early on in my career, there would be kind of like snickers and things like that. And, and now like, you know, I'll have a student who maybe maybe with autism and doesn't really understand social cues on when to stop talking and, and says maybe some things that a different student might think are weird and you know, nobody laughs. They are just very kind to each other. Um, on the flip side, they're so kind that they don't know how to have a healthy debate. 
um, right, in a way that says, here are the facts, here's my opinion on those facts. I am willing to put my opinion out there in a way that disagrees with you. We're talking about the same facts, but we have different ideas and that's okay. We can still like each other. So those are those are a couple of things and I'm, I'm curious, you know, if other people have seen them or you wanna chat more about those things or, or ask more questions. Yeah, no, I think you've brought up some really uh, valid points that, you know, I can I can speak to being middle middle school teacher as well as you know working with the the college students. Um, I've seen the the exact same thing that you're talking about there with you know really where are those critical thinking skills? Why can't they go deeper into a conversation? Why can't they ask more questions? Why you know I I look at some of these discussion board posts that they put up there and it's and it's all so superficial. It's like um, oh, I really liked what you said. Great post. Good job. Like they, ha they haven't added anything to the conversation. <laughs> you know, do you know what I mean? That's like, oh gosh. Yep. <laughs> I have something in my syllabus. Like you have to add to the conversation in a new way, you know? That's the other thing, I guess that I think I've noticed that there might be more, a more variety of students. You kind of have ha, had alluded to it there. There's a, there's a, there's a greater variety of the type of students that are attending college now, um, that it's not just the top of the class, you know, that you're, you're, you're getting, um, anybody can go to college. <laughs> I kind of want to say, but, uh, which I think is, a, is great. Anybody who has money can go to college. There you go. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, which, that's okay. But then, but then what they're not coming to school, coming into college with the skills that I think in the past, maybe we would have, we would have seen. And I'm wondering today, like, how can we go and better prepare students for college so that they are able to do these things? Yeah, I think that's, that's a great question. Do you want me to answer that one now? Or I, I think I heard Mike coming on. Yeah, sure. I don't know. Unless, unless Mike wants to jump in there. Yeah. <laughs> we could be here a while. Two hours, two hours later. <laughs> I have lots of thoughts on this. I, I, I do think, um, Jen, what you were talking about earlier is the, those um, skills around building connections between like abstract ideas or nuanced thinking around, around things. I think is is really challenging. Um, I think a particular challenge for K twelve institutions is that we're we're there's a, there's a lot of pressure to not have students fail, mm -hmm. and so grappling with ideas. Um, I guess there's that, and then there's the other side of this, which is like K twelve institutions are sort of driven by singular answered things, like the answer is always A or the answer is always B to these questions, right? And and I think that in higher ed, there's much more like space for disagreement. And um and it's really hard in K twelve to oh to have that space for disagreement and to do things like construct an argument in a paper and then that paper lead to a quality, you know, assessment of the student, so then the school can get funding, right? Which is like, which is I think really at the the driving heart of the issue is that a lot of K twelve institutions, similar to higher ed in institutions, right, are struggling for money, and they need to be able to quote unquote prove that students are learning things, and it's simply a lot easier to do that on a a, B, C, D basis than uh, perhaps this is this, but perhaps this is that sort of basis. Um, yeah, and I think you both yeah. said sort of other things that I've been thinking about how students have changed and they all kind of wrap in here, right? This, this idea that I actually um, do see, like students wanna be right more than they're curious. And I've seen that change. And I think that this might be tied to to what Mike is saying about this idea that that there is this singular answer. You just you just made me you just made me think of this uh, this uh, this idea with curiosity. I was I was just having a conversation. I had, I was on campus last night teaching a class and and teaching them how to teach science, right? And I'm talking about how you know we have to have we have to create this this engaging learning environment we have to allow them to be able to ask questions we have to you know spark their curiosity and you think about 
okay, you, you watch any preschooler, kindergarten, you know, those kids, you watch them and they are curious about everything, right? Like they, they play with stuff, they build things, they have an imagination. And then what do we do? We put them in schools where they sit in rows. We tell them to follow directions, uh, you know, and what they're going to learn. And we kill it. We kill it. We kill it. We kill it. So then like, this is why we end up having this problem where they come to college and they're no longer curious. They, they no longer, they don't even know what their purpose is because they've never had a chance to actually explore out in the world. Um, I think that's part of the problem. I think it goes back to, it starts way before college <laughs> then, you know, with this whole idea of being curious and inquisitive and. Yeah. Maybe it has something to do with like, they never had to go on a quest. Like we did, like if we heard a song on the radio, we're like, what are those lyrics? What are my options for finding them out? I could buy the cassette tape and unfurl that long little cassette thing. And like, it would smell like a weird perfume or I could like stay up late at night and record it and then try to play it on a slower speed so I can hear what they were saying, right? Like, like we really had to work for it, right? I, I don't know. Who knows if that's part of it. But or, or you could these days just ask your phone, hey, Suri, what are the lyrics to, oh, she just woke up right now on my phone. Oh, no, she's, she's going <laughs> to tell you. <laughs> what are the lyrics to the song that I'm listening to, you know? Pour some sugar on me by Def Leppard. Here are the lyrics. <laughs> but but actually, you had asked a question before, like, how do we be better prepare? And and this is actually something that that is one of these things that keeps me up at night. Because, like, I know that the students aren't doing it. And what I find... I'm the type of person who likes a challenge, but I also can get frustrated. I, I don't know how to teach that, right? I don't know how to teach curiosity. I don't know how to teach critical thinking. And, and that's, it's hard for me and because I was used to students coming in with that. So it was not a skill that I had developed as much as I did in terms of like teaching the concepts and getting them engaged and keeping them interesting. Right. So I, I think there are things that I that I do and I do incorporate to kind of encourage curiosity, um, such as like letting them choose the topic of a paper within a range and things like that. But I don't know how to teach them to make connections across things because I, I'm assuming they already came in with that. So so that's something I, I literally I just don't know. Um, but the other thing is, like you said, what can we do to better prepare people before they go? Well, first off, not everyone has to go. And I think that could be a whole separate conversation, but like really having good counseling moments about who should go to college and who shouldn't. What are some career paths for students who might not go that are good, solid careers? Um, what are some uh, benefits of taking a gap year and thinking about it? What are some benefits of starting at a community college and, and going part-time? And I think way too often, depending on the type of school we're in, we're only um, giving students maybe one pathway or they only see one pathway. So, so that's, that's before we even get there. Uh, but, but I guess maybe thinking more often about um, how to let them express their creativity, um, how to let them fail, um, how to talk about failure as something that is okay and part of the process, because a lot of times they come to me, like I also have higher levels of you know, mental health distress than I ever had before with my students. And some of that is just more education around the topic and more diagnosis. And some of that is just students on edge because if they don't get an A, their world is going to, to fall apart. So, so how do we teach them that that is okay to fail and and, and failure is part of it. And, and making sure that we're not inflating grades. Um, I think um, Matt made the point, um, or maybe it was Mike, that you know when you're pushing everyone through passing, then they're not gonna see those challenges. I'll, I'll say one other thing here so we can move forward is was in terms of debating um, earlier opportunities to do that and in ways that can have students um, see each other's opinion, but see each other's humanity uh, because I've talked to my students about politics before, and one of the things that I hear commonly is they have no civic education, um, but also that their teachers were not allowed to talk about anything, quotes, air quotes here, controversial. And oftentimes, if the teachers did, a parent would call and say the teacher is taking this position X, Y, and Z. So, so I think maybe we, maybe it's time to to teach teachers. Okay, you have an opinion on an issue that's a social or a political or a controversial. How do I go, how do you go into the classroom and teach students how to debate about the facts 
in ways that are like healthy and productive for citizens. And I wanted to um, follow up and ask you a quick question about some of the PhD research you did, because you mentioned something as an aside um, a little bit ago, and I just wanted to get your thoughts on um, you know, the, rec the recent activism around racial justice in sports and um, some of your thoughts on that. Yeah, this is actually, it's, it's interesting because I think we haven't seen this level of racial justice in sports since the 1960s uh, when you had, you know, mm -hmm. um, uh, John Carlos and Tommy Smith with the 1968 uh, Mexico City Black Power Fest, right? And, and what was going on at that time was, you know, if you remember that we had um, gone to World War II, fought for other people's rights, come back and then said, yeah, but we're not going to give them to you here. And so people were frustrated. They were saying, why should I go represent a country that doesn't care about me? And I think you're seeing that a lot of the same feelings are, are happening here. In the 1968 movements that you saw in sports, they were led by folks outside of sport who kind of normalized the discourse. And now um, you're seeing the same thing. Like the discourse was happening outside sports. Athletes were afraid to speak up um, and now they are speaking up. And I think you're seeing tensions here between two groups. Um, athletes who think, um, hey, this is my platform. I should be able to talk about issues. I'm a role model. I want to talk about these things. I wanna tell young kids about these struggles. And on the other hand, you're seeing folks who say politics does not belong in sports. You know, I want to go back to enjoying it without thinking about it. Um, but that begs a question, who gets to enjoy sports when they don't have to think about racial justice? Can you enjoy, for example, in the NFL, watching black bodies beat the out of each other, right? Can you enjoy that and not mm. think about racial justice? That's that's a tough question. Mm. And so um, one of the debates I'll actually be having in my uh, sociology of sport class this year is I set up this assignment where we debate questions like, should athletes have a political platform? Or um, should uh, sports teams have Native American mascot names? Should college athletes be paid? And the students actually have to prepare both sides of that debate and talk about the, the pros and the cons. And it's really hard for me to not have my opinion in there because I've researched and studied some of these yeah. things. Um, but at the end of the day, um, sport works best was inclusive place when it's somewhere that all people can feel like they can come to, whether fans or participants. And if this events of the summer have opened up that discourse more for people to talk about ways that they haven't felt included, I think that will only improve sport for the better, but it's gonna have some growing pains along the way. And it's going to mean that some people are gonna be uncomfortable, but no good things ever really happen when we're comfortable. Yeah. I, well, I say that as I'm sitting here having a great conversation in my sweatpants. Mm -hmm. So let's, <laughs> let's say that most. With, but with COVID particles flying outside your window out, outdoors. Let's say right? most good yeah. things, most good things require us to um, stretch out of our comfort zone. So, mm. when with that class, um, what topic or what idea or what angle um, have you seen get your students most interested or most curious? Um, to debate or to discuss? I think the um, things that impact them personally in some way. So yeah. for example, in the past, um, I've had the, the female athletes get fired up about talking about Title IX. At the same time, male athletes okay. feel that maybe they were excluded. Um, I have a lot of, um, I had a student who had a physical disability and they were really excited to talk about the Paralympics and uh, visibility and coverage of the Paralympics. Um, you, know, you always get your student athletes who want to engage in that discussion of whether or not um, they should be paid. So, so I think the things that, that really personally affect them, like, you know, fire, fire them up the most. Yeah. Yeah. That's cool. You're able to tap into that. Um, when you think about school as, as you experienced it and then now, you know, through, through the years being, being a professor at the university, um, what kind of opportunities uh, do you see available for change? Yeah, this is a this is a great question. There are there are a lot of. I mean, I think COVID is forcing us to think about these things, right? Um, you know, I think that in terms of in terms of change, I think the the maybe the way we grade, um, and 
I say that as we're currently in this phase where we've moved to pass fail for the time being. And we, it was great at first because students were struggling with the transition, but then we saw last semester without grades, students tanking on purpose just to get the D, um, to get the pass. So how do we come up with a system that's fair but that encourages curiosity and still rewards excellence. I think that's something that's right for change that I don't know the answer on. Um, how, I think another thing is some of the things we've been talking about, how to get students more curious, how to get students more, more civically engaged. I, I think now is a great time to think about that as we're going through a moment in the United States where, at least on the political side, we have people who have two different sets of information and can't seem to talk to each other about what set of information they have. So I think it's ripe for creating more opportunities to build back in civics and build back in um, discourse um, kind of thing. So those are two things that come off the top of my head. Uh, one more I would say that really um, coming out of COVID is how to how to use technology in a way that is um, an asset but not a distraction. And this is something I personally have struggled with in the sense when I'm teaching, I'll often show YouTube videos. I'll occasionally have activities and assignments that ask them to use their phone and, and, and different apps. Uh, and then we, then we put them back away. And so I wonder, am I contributing to this inability to focus by mixing them up like this and doing 20 different things? Or am I actually adding and enhancing because I'm incorporating different learning styles? So what is the, how do we find that, that right balance? I think is we're right to make change in that because I almost think we're seeing they're too on the side of being on screens, especially if they're learning from home, right? And they're realizing that there's value being in person. But there's so many things I think we've all learned to do with technology that we found, oh, this is great. I'm going to keep this even when I'm not in COVID. So those are just three. Yeah. ideas. Yeah, thinking about that, just one more follow-up question, still thinking about change and changes that can happen. Do you think uh, the university, right, is is in a position where it's ripe for transformational change? Like, let's use the example, right? Like Uber, the taxi system <laughs> needed to be overhauled. Uber came in, everything was revolutionized. Do you think the university uh, situation is there right now? I just wanted to get your thoughts on that. Yeah, this is it's just tough because one of the things that wound up happening, um, especially at my university, we were kind of like, classes are remote, classes are in person, classes are remote, classes in person. We went back and forth, and it like, it seemed that the students and the faculty were all split on what to do. So like on the one hand, I could sort of see, yeah, this is um, we're ripe for a way to reform, particularly online education in a way that can be rewarding and informative and accessible. I think we're ripe at a moment like that. But also we're seeing people who say, no, no, I like the old model. I wanna go back to that. I wanna be on person, in person experiencing things. And so I think the question becomes, how do we actually use this um, as a learning opportunity? And is it, will enough students say, I like that model of online learning, I wanna keep going? Because we're actually seeing some fatigue with it. We're seeing a lot of Zoom fatigue, yeah, a lot yeah. of online fatigue. And it's like- at, Shoot, if, I've got Zoom fatigue. Yeah. If you would have <laughs> asked me six months ago, I would have said, this is gonna revolutionize online learning. We're gonna find ways to make higher education accessible. And now if you ask me, I would say, I, I honestly don't know because there's been such a pushback. So maybe we'll do a little bit of both. But um, one of the things that's gonna force higher education to change is budget cuts. Um, and uh, that's gonna force their hand more than I think anything else because they're gonna have to get creative and innovative like how restaurants this year got creative and innovative because of you know, money and restrictions. I think those things, I think if it's gonna happen, you know, now now is the time. I, I would personally like to just see instructors be able to kind of personalize the learning experience for college students a bit more. I think so often um, a lot of places it's like you got the syllabus, the syllabus is, is set before you even meet the students and you're expected to like, that's your contract with them and you're expected to, 
you know, follow the, the syllabus to a T. I'd like to really give a, a shout out to uh, Dr. Chris Unger again, who was one of our professors from Northeastern. But um, I love that he opened the class with just, you know, what do you want to do? <laughs> you know, uh, and I think that made some people feel really uncomfortable because they, you know, if you've been in school, especially now at the graduate level and stuff, you're so used to just having a script to follow and you're going to do this one right after another. And for a professor to just say, what do you want to do? Um, I mean, that was probably, I think it was one of the best classes that we, that I've taken. I'm sure Mike, Matt, and Julie can probably speak to it too, but that's just yeah, well, what I You'll like this story. Um, two semesters, maybe a year ago, I was teaching race and ethnicity and something happened and one student said something about the Confederate flag. And then another student said, can we talk about that more? And I said, we don't have time today. Um, and the other thing is people weren't prepared. They hadn't read anything, right? So I said, but, but I promised you, and I changed around the syllabus, and I added that in on, uh, at the end of the semester. And the students were super grateful for it. So then the next semester, I said, that was such a great idea. I'm going to do that every year. I'm going to set aside two classes. I'm going to ask the students what they want to learn. I'm going to assign the readings after the fact. And <laughs> yeah. then they were like, I don't know. Uh -huh. <laughs> um, oh, my gosh. <laughs> so, so it's. Students are, are fickle creatures, yeah. what can we say, right? Yeah. And and so then one of the things that you run up against is like, okay, now, oh no, now we're midway through the semester and I got to figure something out and, you know, I'm grading and I don't have time. So, so I think that goes back to like, if we have curious students, that process becomes easier. Um, if yep. we don't have curious yeah. students who are just saying, no, just tell me what you think, you know, like you give me all the answers. Um, it's, it's so much harder to customize that experience when like they just don't know what they want to learn. So Jen, this conversation has been awesome and we always like to kind of move into a section of our conversation where we ask our co-hosts and hopefully our guests to reflect for a little bit on how this conversation is pushing them to rethink education in some way co-hosts, which one of y'all want to take a crack at this? I have some takeaways. Um, I'm thinking, I'm thinking as uh, most of us are K to 12ers and probably a lot of our listeners are as well. Um, so this has been an interesting perspective. Um, I think if we were to ask someone who's in business, say, you know, what is higher ed doing, you know, uh, what could they be doing better? Or what could, you know, K to 12 be doing better to prepare students for college? I think it's the same answer. And I think, uh, Jen, you hit it right on the head where, you know, preparing uh, students to think critically, um, having more opportunities for them to do just that, think deeper, um, make those connections, and somehow um, have this innate curiosity. So, that's what I'm thinking about, how it's sort of like a, a trickle-down sort of um, model that we have here. But certainly, at some point, we, we have to um, address like what's at the heart of that. So that's what I appreciate about this conversation. That's what it has me thinking about. And I would agree. I'm, I'm right on the same lines there. How do we really spark curiosity and inquiry uh, in students? And it's got to start from a young age, and it has to be it has to be supported and, you know, in order to, for it to really come out when they're in college and have, be these critical thinkers that we're looking to have go out into the world and do great things. Um, we do, I think we need to ask kids more often, you know, what do you want to do? What are you interested in? What is it, what are you passionate about? Um, you know, try things out, do something different and not just this, you know, here's some information now regurgitate it back to me. Um, yeah, that's what I'm going with. And I love the idea, of course, uh, bring back civil discourse. I'm going to, we need kids, children should be able to debate with each other in a, in a civilized manner. I agree with that. <laughs> yeah. One thing that jumped out to me is when, when you were sort of talking, Jen, when you were sort of talking about like what drew you to higher ed, you were sort of talking about, you know, K through 12, uh, things are very segmented, right? Like, like everything's in its own lane. And, and I think that's wrong about K through 12 education. One of the things that drew you to 
the university level was, you know, you can study this and that, and this intersects with this, and, and that's over there. And, and I think that's a beautiful thing about learning that uh, many schools have failed. And we can bring that back. And some schools are by having, you know, full-scale project learning where everything is integrated. Um, one, that's more interesting. <laughs> and two, we can see the, the pieces interconnect and, and we can learn and we can collaborate. And uh, yeah, so my mind uh, sort of jumped off on a tangent when you said that and, and got me thinking. For me, I think about this statement you had really early on, Jen, where you said the images of who teachers are and you had, and I was asking you about this early on. Um, and I think that really stuck out to me because you know, there's a national teacher shortage that is like that we're either in the middle of experiencing right now or going to be experiencing full force very soon, right? And part of this is because a lot of teachers have left the profession since the start of COVID. Some were on the verge of retirement, some were a couple of years away, but their districts offered them, you know, retirement severance packages. And some were just like, I got to go because I can't be dealing with teaching in the middle of this nonsense right now. And in Pennsylvania, you know, we're experiencing under enrollment in teaching programs, even for the fewer students that are going to be coming through schools in the next, you know, 15 or 20 years. And this is especially true as more sort of, uh, you know, boomer era individuals um, retire from schools. And so I'm thinking of the the importance of young teachers and how we can promote teaching as a profession to young people, how we can help young people, you know, cultivate a love of teaching, a love of working with other people, um, and the ability to do that in a sort of more free way that allows them to be interdisciplinary or explore all of these things that we know that people like the millennials or Generation Y, Z, Q, whatever generation we're on now, um, all of these people have kind of ideas about what they value in in their jobs that teaching isn't bringing right now. And I think we need to allow those things to exist. Um, yeah, and Jen, I'll let, you, I'll let you talk about college debt because I think I was just talking about somebody, talking about this about somebody recently that you know, student teaching when you're a K-12 uh, educator in a good world is a year of servitude um, where you don't get paid. And that's crazy, you know, and uh, I, I, can't, I can't even imagine, um, you know, if you're from a low-income background or even a working-class background, how much of, a, of an impediment that is, uh, that is for, you know, people who are, who are concerned about debt in their future. For some reason, when I was you know, whatever, 21, I wasn't that concerned about debt in my future. And so now I'm just going to have to pay it back for the rest of my life. Um, but the last thought I want to share is about Bean Dad. If y'all aren't familiar with Bean Dad, um, he was on Twitter. He's amazing. And by amazing, I mean terrible. And there's this whole story about Bean Dad talking to his daughter in 23 tweets about how uh, he's trying to like help her figure out how to open this can of beans so they can eat. And ultimately it was, it was probably a display of a uh, pretty intense, like um, borderline child abuse in these tweets. But I'm thinking about that as sort of the extreme end of the version of like, let your kid get through the problem on their own to the other end of the problem, which is maybe existing a little bit more in K-12 schools now than we would like, which is don't let your students encounter any problem and figure it out on their own, right? So if we can avoid being dad, but then we can also avoid the other end of the spectrum, maybe we'll end up in a place where they're ready to kind of be up to the challenge when they when they come to Jen. Um, yeah, Jen, what do, what are you thinking? That would that would be a great balance. Um, I this is something we we didn't talk an, uh, about. You know, I did mention the rising cost, but we were kind of talking about my role. But yeah, we could probably have a whole nother podcast about the costs and what they mean for accessibility. But but yeah, I really think we need some sort of public debt forgiveness program for for people who go into public service. And and here I would include teachers. Uh, I would include um, you know emergency personnel, cops, uh, firefighters, things like that. Um, you know these these salaries do not pay a lot. And um, more and more, they're requiring degrees, right? So, so let's get them. Let's get them help like that. I think that might be encouraging. But I would say two things that that have got me uh, rethinking um, edu is one that 
that I'm constantly saying that that students can't do certain things, but I don't think I have enough conversations with the people that see them before they get to me. And I think that um, those channels don't really exist. And I think that maybe I could probably do more um, to, to find out what's going on there and to also learn from those people because um, as I said earlier, it's something I'm not sure how to teach because I never had to. Uh, but if I'm going to have to, um, how can I learn from people who are or should be doing it at a different level? And and I think that there probably are things that I can learn, for example, from high school um, teachers and get into more conversations about like, you know, sending and receiving students. I don't want them to sound like, you know, packages, but um, but then also I think that I think I was really challenged by some of the questions about what to do about change. And I think that just has a lot to do with, you know, I, there's only so many bandwidth any one person has. And uh, when I'm giving so much of it to grading papers and preparing good lectures and working with students and seeing them in my office on a daily basis go through their problems, like I don't always have the, the bandwidth to, to think ahead and, and think to the future and think creatively. And those are actually things I like doing. Um, so I wonder if um, in my own way or with my colleagues I, that, that I might create space where, um, where I think more about about solutions and get into conversation with folks about those things. Yeah, yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, totally. <laughs> well, Jen, it's been a lovely uh, conversation with you here this evening. But before we go, we always love to give our co-hosts and our guests an opportunity to plug some things that they're watching, that they're listening to. And I know we got a couple things that were brewing maybe here amongst the co-hosts, but Jen, let's give you a chance to plug some things first. Give us something that you're reading or that you are checking out on Instagram or your favorite podcast or uh, your favorite new online shop that you've been, you know, curating your home from. <laughs> well, I'm, I have quite a long commute, so, so I'm a much bigger podcaster uh, than I am an Instagrammer. Um, and now that I'm back at work a couple of days a week, I'm really catching up on, on my podcast, but a couple good ones that I listen to that kind of intersect on my areas. Um, you know, I, I actually study, as you know, kind of sport and race and some of the intersections in between them. So because of that, I, I'm always thinking about how to, how to think and have conversations about race and how to talk about it and how to learn from other things outside of sport. And one of the, the best podcasts that I heard um, last year was this little mini series called Nice White Parents. Um, this was such a challenging podcast because we were talking about civic debate. This presented multiple solutions to a problem and how a group of people worked through those multiple solutions and who had power and who didn't and how it affected the kids' education. I mean, it encompasses a lot of things we talked about here today. Um, and it's the type of thing that I think people would learn a lot about education from listening to. So the second one, the second podcast I'll plug is actually a one that I think is really interesting from the other aspect, more of my research of uh, sport and sociology. It's another, another podcast, it's called Heavy Metals. And this was a podcast that was looking at the, the Carolis, who were coaches of USA Gymnastics for years. And it looked at their coaching strategies and how their coaching strategies affected the students. I think a lot of people heard about um, the Netflix documentary, Athlete A, and the Larry Nassar scandal. Um, this, this podcast goes much deeper. And I think it's actually, it's something that's good for coaches, but also educators in the sense of, Okay, we talked about how do you challenge students while also telling them it's okay to fail. Well, what are the consequences when you go too far? Like this, these are like being dad to it, you know, a million times, um, these coaches. And how did that actually affect the social, the emotional, the physical development of these girls? And one final plug uh, that I'll give you, and it's only because two of my former students started their own podcast where they talk to people in sports about different social issues. And I'm super proud of them because they did this on their own and are actually drawing from some of the lessons they learned in class. And that podcast is called Forward Progress. And the hosts are Sophia and Carolyn, who are two Monmouth University graduates that took my sport and society class a couple of years ago. Awesome. Thanks, Jen. We'll be sure to include those links in our podcast description. So for all of those of you listening, you can check that out. 
So to all you listeners out there, thanks so much for joining us this afternoon, this evening, this morning um, on your commute, sitting at home at your desk, listening on your sweet surround sound system or just on your headphones. We really appreciate you taking the time to uh, check us out. It always helps if you can head over to Apple and uh, leave us some ratings, five stars. We love it. You know, a little comment there would be awesome. And keep on the lookout for our next few episodes, which are sure to be terrific as we continue our series on perspectives. And as always, keep rethinking EDU. Thanks.